Hello everyone, you are listening to the Igbo Initiative podcast with Ugochi Onyewu. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Igbo Initiative podcast, where we celebrate all things Igbo. We speak to amazing women in different walks of life who are either Igbo or who are friends of Igbo culture. Today, I chat to the incredibly accomplished Linda Nkechinyalu, or I'm a Leverett. Linda is the co-founder and partner of Kupanda Capital, a private equity firm that focuses on investing in Pan-African companies across all sectors. She's invested in some really cool companies, including Maven Records, which is Don Jazzy's record label. Linda is very passionate about development on the continent and is also very down to earth in spite of her huge success. Linda grew up in Manitoba, Canada, but was firmly grounded in Igbo culture. She joined the Umunna Igbo Association as a child and learned to celebrate the culture despite growing up outside Nigeria. Linda moved to the US from Canada a decade ago for law school. She originally wanted to be a litigator, but developed a love for private equity and work on the African continent. She worked for the African Development Bank in Tunisia allowing her to work with some of the most brilliant minds, solving complex development problems on the continent. She co-founded Kupanda Capital in 2011. In today's episode, we talk about the importance of following good people and how people matter in business and in life. So hi, Linda. Thank you so much for joining. I'm so excited to speak to you this evening. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I told the audience a little bit about you and uh, we're just going to dive right in. And I wanted you to just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Where in Igbo land are you from? What's your background? What was life like growing up as an Igbo girl? No Knowledge of the Igbo language. I know it's a lot in one, but just start off telling us a little bit about you. Absolutely. I'll try and unpack the question little by little. You can prompt me along. Okay. So, as a matter of fact, I was born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. So in the prairies of Canada, um, to two Igbo parents. So my parents both hail from Inewi, mm. um, in Anambra State. Yeah. Now, um, it's very interesting. I think people always say there are black people in Winnipeg. Um, <laughs> beyond that, I mean, for, for us, I mean, it was not just black people. There are Nigerians and more specifically Igbos in Winnipeg. Wow. I, we're everywhere, I suppose. Wow, yes. So, yeah, growing up as a young, you know, as a, as a girl, the concept of home was solidly imprinted on me. Mm. Um, from my name at home, I mean, you have Linda Oranacion there, mm. but at home I was always in Kichinyalu, always. Mm. And to what we ate to the ideas of family and community, mm. there was, you know, there was really this concept of who we were. Of course, you know, we, we may have been Canadian citizens, but we were from, you know, home was not Canada for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. So I, I think examples of that would be, you know, even I can remember growing up how many relatives my parents sponsored to come and get Mm. post-secondary education in Mm. in Canada Mm -hmm. who lived with us growing up. So that was intrinsic in our idea of of 
family. It wasn't the Western nuclear mm-hmm. family. It was extended, mm-hmm. which I think is very characteristic of us as Igbos and sometimes broadly as Africans. Yes, exactly. And even in central Canada, um, as I said previously, Igbos found their way there. <laughs> and I was raised within a community called the, Ibo, um, the Umuna Igbo Association of Manitoba hmm. that still exists today. Wow. Um, and that group, I mean, you'd have Umuna meetings, you'd have them at least, you know, once a month hosted in different homes across the community. So you grew up with, with you know, your community around you. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd have our socials and our parties. And moreover, um, I think it was a unique experience growing up in Canada where there's a rich emphasis on a cultural mosaic. So the mm. federal government even, you know, funded cultural festivals where, mm. you know, they'd have a broader Africa cele- uh, celebration. Mm. Trust the Igbos alone to not even have a Nigeria pavilion, <laughs> but Igbos specifically. <laughs> and, you know, they had us girls learn to dance. At your local, mm. we were dancing. Yes. We were, you know, so it was there is a richness um, to to that very different Igbo girl experience in central Canada. Amazing. Amazing. So, so did you speak Igbo at home? And so this is one of the few things we did not. Mm -hmm. We used it as a tool to eavesdrop on our parents, of course, because they spoke (laughs) Igbo all the time. But I had to say that, you know, they would speak to us and we respond in English. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the, that is one of the things that is, is, you know, a, a regret mm-hmm. that we did not pick up the language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's a, I wouldn't say a big deal, but I think, you know, what what I'm finding, especially interviewing people like you and, uh, you know, other people who are in similar situations, who are starting in adulthood to start to express an interest in learning the language. Um, I just think it's a great thing that we, uh, the collective we, um, are starting to express interest and, and revive the culture. So I think it's it's all good, right? Even though, yeah, it would have been great if we learned learned as kids but it's never too late right so yes no definitely yeah 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 so what does being an Igbo girl mean to you do you have any kind of I know you talked about the the dancing atilogu as a girl which is amazing and um, do you have any kind of fond memories around the food around any kind of events and uh, other like traditional weddings did you attend any any anything that you can speak about yeah so it's it's very for me I feel like it's this is a tough question because it's so ingrained you know it was like growing up in Canada um you know you'd open your lunch and you'd you'd have jollof rice you have my mind like it's so ingrained yes. huh? and so so that is something to me um especially growing up here where it was it was at that point in time when you're seven or eight, you felt so distinctly different. Mm. And now it, it, I mean, I think it's informed my career path. It's mm. impo- informed so much of my life. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm so thankful that you can take Ndibo out of Igbo lab, but you'll all, they'll always, there'll be a immature of our culture and a love of home. Um, I feel like it's very, it's very difficult to de- you know, dissect from the DNA of mm-hmm. who I am today. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like your parents had a really strong influence on your on your life. I mean, even though you didn't speak Igbo at home, they, they took you to these events. You were part of this association. You, you learned to dance at Tilogu. So there was a pride in being Igbo that they kind of instilled in you, which um, has carried you through. So what would you say is the influence that your parents had on your life? Do you have any specifics that you can help us with? 
Yes, with, without a question. I think my parents have had such an impact on my life. And I think, you know, we can all say that to some extent. For me, um, I would say hard work and discipline. Mm. I know I can remember, you know, so many times where I'd come back and say, it's just too hard. And they'd say, you know, do they have two heads? Do yes. you have one? Like, yes. bend down and get it done. Yes. And, yes. Right? And so I'd have to say that that type of, that that tenacity, mm. when you bring it forth, in, especially in my current career, I can tell you, you know, I, I didn't start off knowing how to do venture capital deals. Mm-hmm. But when I'd sit and say, you know, in a resource-constrained environment, it can't do this. You think to yourself, others are, so why can't I? Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that my parents have imprinted on me since, you know, I was a young child. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it, it, this, this is one that has, it as a little bit complex, I think without knowing it, my parents instilled in me a sense of entrepreneurship. Hmm. <laughs> and people, you know, there's a notorious, oh, you're from Newey. There is, that is known as, as, as a very, it's a special town, yes. very entrepreneurial <laughs> yes. there. And it's very interesting. My parents, they're both Newey people. And I think that the as immigrants, being immigrants to Canada in the mm. mid, mid to late 70s, mm. there was almost a certain risk adversity that they started to develop for mm. us. Mm. They wanted us, of course, to do more conventional things. Yeah. But watching them as we grew up, it was very, I mean, you know, it was clear. My, my dad had, I don't even know how many side hustles that really established our quality of life, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, there is a level of entrepreneurship mm. and just intellectual curiosity that comes with problem solving mm. that was instilled from, from them. Yeah. Um, and I think resilience, mm. I think like many others in their generation um, that, you know, left home, in the mid to late 70s, mm. they, they came already having post-secondary education mm-hmm. in Nigeria, mm. and they came and had to start all over again. Mm. And I, I have to say, this is not something that they even talk about. I think they, they almost have an attitude of, yeah, and, and you know, and, yeah. and so for me, um, you think about that, and in a way, maybe it's a little level of competition. I remember saying to my dad, dad, like, you did all this with, mm. with, you know, having had to have to restart, I've got to do better, you know? Yeah. And so with that, it, yeah. it's that level of resilience. Mm. I think even immigrating here from Canada had there, you know, there's always moments of adversity, but I always think of what they did. Yeah. And you'll push forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I'm really excited to kind of start to talk about what you're doing now. Um, but maybe we can just talk a little bit because you've talked about how your parents really influenced your life. And I, I love this because it it causes us to kind of pause and reflect as we see ourselves succeed. We realize that it's on the backs of the, the people that have gone before us. Um, so I'm glad yes. you kind of spoke to that. That's really powerful. But so now you're in the U.S. How did you end up in the U.S. from Canada? Did you... Um, um, move here as an adult or did you move here fairly early on? How did you transition over to life in the U.S.? Yes, I moved here as an adult. For me, it was, um, you know, I'd, as I said, grown up in central Canada and, and I fell in love with a little bit of the, the audacity of the American dream. Mm-hmm. So I moved here for graduate school, okay. um, for law school specifically. Mm. Um, and so that was now... Uh, it's been well over a decade. 
So yeah, that, that's, that's when I moved here. And you've done really well for yourself. So maybe we can kind of talk about what you're doing now. Talk to us about your journey to where you are now. How did you um, transition from law school to what you're doing now? And then just kind of talk to the audience. Tell us what you do and talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So for me, I, I always think it's, it's very important for people to think about to get as much exposure as possible, even as they start thinking of career ideas. And for me, I didn't, you know, I didn't have an idea of what venture capital or private equity was or mm-hmm. even investment banking mm-hmm. growing up. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, 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 you know, the law is far more of a concrete area where you have some exposure to. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I knew that I wanted to, at that point, be a lawyer. And I thought specifically a litigator. Mm-hmm. So I ardently pursued post-undergrad to get to go to law school. And um went to law school and actually figured out that litigation probably wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Moreover, um, you know, I'd done, you know, business undergrad and I loved the idea of transactional work in mergers and acquisitions, mm-hmm. kind of the, the actually, you know, it's, I'm a people person. So mm-hmm. it's the underlying people behind, you know, what makes everything you read in the wall street journal, or, you know, Financial Times, it's impacted by egos and people. And mm-hmm. I found that very interesting. Wow, yeah. So, yeah. So what happened is, you know, I figured that out in law school a little late. I have to be honest. Hmm. And so um, I, I'd gone to a, a summer at a large law firm. It didn't work very well for me. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I came back to, to law school and and, you know, decided to you know, take a, take a, well, interview for a clerkship, which I ultimately didn't take. Mm -hmm. And then I had to follow my intellectual curiosity a bit Mm -hmm. and, you know, took a fellowship with, with an organization here that's DC based that is a, um, you know, it it advocates for U.S. businesses in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And thereafter worked for a boutique um, fund formation, private equity fund formation, law firm hmm. um, and, and learned the fundamentals of what private equity was. I think I learned a little bit about what it was here in DC at the trade organization hmm. and realized that I want to get the hard skills to actually, you know, draft these agreements. Hmm. Um, so I moved to New York city and worked at a boutique uh, fund formation law firm. Hmm. Now um, just to give some context, that was probably 2008 when I moved mm. and we all know that that was about the advent of the financial crisis yes, exactly um, and so <laughs> you're, you're you're structuring funds and no one's investing there's no liquidity in right. the market right so so ultimately it was a moment where you know usually the risk the risk averse person in me could sit and say you know what if I take a chance and move abroad everyone's going to get so much more deal experience than me mm. I knew fundamentally since leaving law school that I wanted to do work mm. um, on, on the continent, African transactions. Mm. And at that point in time, um, a lot of people limited that space to doing oil and gas work mm, yeah. or mining work, right. which wasn't as exciting to me. It's great stuff, but it wasn't, I wasn't ex- as excited about doing, you know, project finance in that space. Mm. Um, so when I learned about private equity, I, my eyes brightened and I thought, how can I get into there? Mm. Um, so ultimately at that point in time, I decided to take a leap, leap of faith. And 
I applied for a program at the African Development Bank. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, and um, you know, fortunately, it was a blessing. I got into the program and moved to Tunisia. Hmm. Um, yeah, and it was a great opportunity. I think mm -hmm. that was a formative career opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it allowed me to work with some of the most, you know, brilliant Pan-African and global talent mm -hmm. to solve, you know, very interesting development issues across the continent. Hmm. And I, I focused a lot of my interest around private sector. Hmm. So I was able to work with some fantastic lawyers in the general counsel's office of the African Development Bank doing private equity and project finance transactions hmm. across the across the continent. Um, also, it also led to my current opportunity. Um, I always say follow good people. Hmm. Um, and I worked as chief of staff to um, a gentleman who I, 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 you know, it's it's great after a decade of knowing someone, you're still like, these are some of the most brilliant people I know. Mm. Um, and so I work with him. And in addition, my other partner, um, she's also, I feel the same way. They're two of the most brilliant people I know. Mm. Um, she'd been his previous chief of staff. And as she was moving on, I was recruited to be his second chief of staff. Mm. So, um, and thereafter continue to work on private equity transactions there. Hmm. So as, as I was leaving the African Development Bank, um, the, you know, the gentleman who was vice president at the bank and who is now our managing partner at Cupanda Capital kind of brought us all together, the three of us, hmm. to co-found Cupanda Capital. Yeah, and so Cupanda Capital was co-founded now just about eight years ago um, from that experience, that common experience, working at the African Development Bank, which was fantastic. Mm. I can't think of another place where we would have gotten such deep transactional experience mm. working pretty much all the way across the African content, wow. continent and building a solid network in doing so. Um, you know, I, I think some, I've got some brilliant ex-colleagues who are now, you know, all over in the, you know, you know, everywhere from the DFI space mm -hmm. to NGOs to philanthropy mm -hmm. and in, you know, private equity and investment space in Africa. So it was, it was a great experience. And I think, I mean, one of the best risks I've taken. This is so this is interesting, you know, because you you're you're in private equity and, and I'm going to take a step back in a minute. Um, maybe you can explain to the audience what private equity is, because there'll be some people listening that are not quite sure what private equity venture capital is. Um, uh, so maybe you can explain that. But so you're working in private equity, and you're working with these fantastic people and you're chief of staff. And then um, the the you're approached I'm assuming I'm assuming and uh, the idea is like hey let's start let's start our own <laughs> private equity uh, firm and you're like sure let's go for it there has to have been something that made you um, want to take that leap is it just that you're you're you wanted to try something new or it sounded like fun or you could see a path to success what was it that made you make that leap <laughs> now <laughs> It was very scary. And I talk about, you know, entrepreneurship and risk. And keep in mind, my parents were like, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. You are in, you know, the, the African Development Bank it was in a, it was, is a phenomenal institution. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was, there was a sure path forward. Um, for me, and I think this is some advice I give, people matter. And 
for me when I look at the two individuals that I was able to think about jumping into the unknown with, mm-hmm. it actually, to me, you know, there's some things at which, you know, failure is always something, you know, there's always a risk of failure. Of course. When you're working with really solid people, yeah. to me, it would have been a journey that I was willing to take that, with Yeah, that them. makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Linda, if you wouldn't mind, just explain to the audience what private equity is and VC as well, if you don't mind. Sure. Very simply, what it is, is it's, it's composed of investors that, direct, that directly invest into private companies. So these aren't companies that are, you know, currently on the public market, but private companies. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they can engage in like bios of public companies, um, but it's usually investing into private companies, mm-hmm. to, you know, to, and the segment of private equity known as growth capital is investing money so that you can grow and scale their operations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, these are usually, you know, more mature revenue generating businesses, whereas venture capital it actually is earlier on mm. before companies are necessarily, um, you know, mature, very mature um, revenue generating. It could be earlier on in revenue generation mm. or it can be when things are still at an idea or conception phase. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's always, I, I don't want to even overcomplicate it, but these are two big boxes mm. and a lot of platforms fall somewhere in between mm-hmm. or sometimes don't necessarily even fall very neatly into one of those boxes. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. our platform is one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that we're traditional venture capital, mm-hmm. um, given the fact that we don't take, you know, as many bets. We don't invest in, you know, 12, 13 companies and hope that two or three will make it. Right. Um, we we would call ourselves more venture builders. Mm. We take far fewer bets, but de-risk those bets by having very heavy operational participation in the companies. Mm. So, yes, if that provides some some context. Interesting. It does. It does. And And you mentioned Africa. So do you primarily invest in African companies or is it across the globe? Yeah, for us, we, we focus on what we know, mm-hmm. and we focus on pan-African companies, mm-hmm. and or else companies will have a significant nexus of the services that they provide being Africa-focused. Mm. So yes, it is strictly pan-Africa-focused. Interesting. And so how do you evaluate a possible company? How do you, what, are the, what is the criteria for investment? How do you um, look at it? And do you look at the business plan? Do you look at the, the projection for growth? What are some of the criteria that you use to evaluate a company that you're looking to invest in? Yes. For us, I, I, I think the one thing that's critical to note is we are not traditional um, venture capital or growth capital. Mm -hmm. So for us, sometimes it might even be that a company may not exist, Hmm. but we look at a sector, right? Um, For us, if I, if I go through what we look at, I'd say first people matter, right? So even if, you know, if we're looking at at a potential company or looking at professionals that we'd like to hire around a company, Mm -hmm. it's people matter. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, execution, track record, Mm -hmm. and really for us, given the fact that we have played such a heavy operational role in our companies, Mm -hmm. it's, can we work with them? Is there a working rhythm and is there trust? Mm -hmm. Um, Furthermore, for us, we'll also look at 
given the fact that what we're seeking to do is build Pan-African companies, we'll look at the sectors Mm -hmm. and see whether or not we believe they're growth sectors. Mm -hmm. Do they have potential to become Pan-African or even global companies? And part of the analysis there, we we use a proprietary technology um, called Frame, which is one of our the companies that we founded mm-hmm. and have invested in to provide data and understand the market potential around these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Frame addresses the consistent challenge that was present of, you know, getting localized data to inform decisions in investing in investing decision making across Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we use that data to inform our thinking as well. Um, and as I stated, it's we seek out specific sectors. Mm-hmm. And if we can't find the, the right entrepreneurs or companies to back, mm-hmm. we found the com- we found like we'll, we'll essentially establish and found the companies and utilize our networks to fill key executive positions and build the company. Interesting. Wow, that's so interesting. So, so you talked about sectors. What are some of the sectors that you specifically have invested in? Yeah. While we're generally sector agnostic, meaning we invest generally across sectors, mm-hmm. um, as you can see from our current, you know, if you have any idea of our current portfolio in music, data, off-grid <laughs> yes. energy, you know, yes. we've, it's, it's broad. Yes. Um, but right now, we have a particular interest in energy, media, health, and other consumer-facing sectors. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I, I see that you also invested or you're collaborating with Maven Records and Don Jazzy. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Interesting. So that's another sector. That's a, so it, it's, it's a wide variety of different sectors, basically, which makes it interesting, I can, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, that's great. Oh, absolutely. That's great. There's no dull day. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I'm sure every day is different from the previous one, correct? I'm sure every day is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talking about every day being different and being busy and and life being, I'm sure, very fast paced and really interesting. I'm sure there have been some hurdles and times when things haven't gone as well as planned. Can you talk about a time in your life, whether it be now or prior to, to your current career, when things didn't go as as well as planned um the reason i ask this is because we have a lot of younger listeners as well and even just just uh, peers that just may be interested in learning about some of the difficult times not so much necessarily what happened even though we do want to hear about it but more about how you handled it what you learned and, and and what you've taken from that uh moving forward yes certainly i have to say that um Post law school, for example, I spoke to it about it, about it a little bit. Um, I thought, you know, it ticked all the boxes and it done all the extracurriculars. But I, I ended up not taking the clerk a clerkship offer mm-hmm. and found myself in a situation where, you know, there's there's no charted path in front of me, and I felt very, you know, it, it felt as though maybe I'd failed. A lot of my peers were in, you know, large law, mm-hmm. and um, I felt my, I found myself asking, what next? Um, and I'd have to say that it, it was in that situation, you talk about the resilience and also having to follow some of your intellectual curiosity to mm-hmm. figure out, you know, what is best for you. Mm-hmm. I, I always say there's, there's no real blueprint for these things, mm-hmm. but it is, I always say like, you've got to follow some of your intellectual curiosity mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it can be tough out there, and I can say in the same 
same vein sourcing deals. It doesn't always go as you planned. Mm. You know, you have a, you know, a calendar in front of you. You're going to get this deal in the next six months, year. And, you know, you spoke about Maven. Talk about people. Um, mm. They're fantastic partners. Mm. But I thought, you know, we were all going to get, you know, get this done in three months. It took time. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad it did. You know, Don Jazzy and Tega, they're, they're excellent partners. Mm. Um, Don Jazzy and the whole Maven team are excellent partners. Mm. Um, and it took time to cultivate that relationship. Mm. Things weren't going according to my plan. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it also took some agility to, you know, in order to, to listen to, to, you know, to their needs, wants, and to really begin to actually cultivate a relationship in a platform, mm. you know, that could last mm-hmm. the test of time. Mm. Hmm. That's interesting. And, you know, you, you keep kind of going back to alluding to the same thing about it's all about people, the people that you deal with matter. Um, so this is kind of as you were talking, I thought about this question. I wanted to ask because you talked about the right people working with brilliant people and that kind of gave you the confidence to take the leap to what you're doing now. You talked about uh, working with Don Jazzy and Tega and Maven Records and, and how they're great people. So you, you talk about people. How, how do I phrase this? I guess my question is, um, how do you know when you're dealing with the right person, right? I, I guess what are the characteristics that does it, maybe it just takes time, right? Maybe it's just something that you cultivate over months and years to kind of be able to trust someone. But are there certain things that you can kind of tell early on um, that give you an indication of the type of person you're working with? Does that make sense? Yes. And it's not only for work. I feel I universally for yeah. me, authenticity is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel, you know, there's, of course, you know, there's there's some wisdom and discernment that comes in, of course, progressive revelation with people. Mm. But I think off the cuff, there is like shared values. There's authenticity. Mm. Um, and, and those things really matter in mm. terms of building you know, scenarios where you have loyalty and trust, mm-hmm. things are always going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this world, you want to know, is this someone you can go to battle with? Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, and, and so for me, um, I don't worry so much about, you know, things are going to go wrong at some point, but it's, it is, you know, it's the integrity, the authenticity, and just the shared values you go into a venture with mm-hmm. someone or, you know, a partnership adventure, um, with and and so for me that that's been an important thing throughout the course of my career. Mm. Um, I have to be honest. I would, I think, substance like su- interest in what you do as a substantive matter is very important, mm. right? Mm. But for me, I would follow the right people mm. even over substance. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's 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 a great point. I think we we think so much about the end result. Uh, I'm speaking of myself. The end result, but thing about the people without so much being so obsessed with the end result is critical. So I'm glad you, you talked about that. What are your favorite books, Linda? Do you have one or two books that you love to read that you've read that you would recommend? Certainly. Um, let me think, I'm going to try and go, you know, to two different genres here. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think we are in such a, you know, it's, it's, there's, of course there's, you know, I feel like there's a little bit of a contemporary renaissance of like African writers. So yes. of course everyone loves, you know, I think Americana is someone who's grown up abroad. It, it's got, you know, it's, it's, it's something, it's one I've really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that um, 
you know, I don't know if you've read the book Speak No Evil, Uzodina um, Iwela. It's it's actually oh. it's it's within the last year or two, huh. it presents another contemporary perspective okay. of a, a Nigerian American, huh. and you get you know it's kind of you get how the culture um, is enmeshed in, in everything mm. um, as this young you know this young man grows up in Georgetown of all places. Um, so those are two that I, of the kind of, um, contemporary African or contemporary Nigerian, um, author genre. And I would also say, um, from a more business or strategy perspective, I do love Malcolm Gladwell's Mm -hmm. David and Goliath. It's actually a bit of an older book now. Um, but to me, I, I, I think that it's, everyone loves like, you know, uh, Cinderella or David's story, but mm. it speaks more to this strategy of what you do when you're, you know, you're not the incumbent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do think it is one of those books that allows people to think innovatively mm. um, with their current resources on how to succeed. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's great. I, I This has been such a great conversation. I, you know, I'd I've just so enjoyed learning a little bit about you and what you do and, uh, and how you do it. But before you go, um, I have a question that I always ask my guests in one way or another. Um, and the way I'll ask you is if you were speaking on a panel, say you're on a panel, whether it be a career panel or just a panel speaking to young girls, um, say 20 year old, around that kind of age, what is the one th- piece of advice that you would give them? One thing that you'd want them to take away from the panel? Yes, I, I think that I would tell them to be audacious. Hmm. And to follow their intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say audacious, I, I say, I mean, think big, um, dream big. And, and you know, because I, I do think that, you know, regardless, what I've seen across spaces is women, oftentimes they do a ton of work. They, you know, they're meticulous in their work. Like mm-hmm. some, some women are absolutely meticulous. And there's a little bit of audacity with respect to their careers and taking a little bit of, you know, risk in their hands Mm. and just being bold. Mm. Um, And the second thing is follow your intellectual curiosity. Mm. Um, I I do feel like, you know, we have, you know, we don't know, you know, we don't know how long we're alive. Mm. And I, I, I strongly believe that there is, of course, being responsible, but figure out what it is that drives you. You know, what makes you very excited? Mm. Those are going to be the the places where you naturally excel mm. because work won't feel like work. Mm. It will naturally blend itself across, you know, parts of your life. And so those would be, you know, the two pieces of advice I give to, to you know, a 20-year-old or to myself, you yeah. know, years ago. Yeah, so even to me, that's great advice for me, right? So, and I'm not 20. <laughs> so this <laughs> has been so awesome, Linda. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank no, you so much. Thank you for doing what you do. It's, it's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Linda. In the show notes, I will make available the books that Linda recommended. As always, please tell your friends about the show. Also visit our website at www.theebo.com and follow me on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Ebo Initiative. In the next episode, we will chat to a beautiful lady who worked at the White House as part of the Obama administration. 
I appreciate all of you. See you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.